Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the CEO and founder of Valentium, Dan Purvis. With a passion in building things, Dan has accomplished this by founding the successful business Valentium. He has a background in automation, controls, and software. Dan helps his clients get tasks done more easily, more safely, and more efficiently. They do this in two different industries, upstream oil and gas and medical devices. And this company is growing like crazy. So Dan, my friend, let's get right to it. Thank you for being here today. You bet, Drew. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, man, I'm going to start where we always start. How in the world did, did we get into this line of work? How'd you start this company? Yeah, so I have always had a passion for people uh, before anything else. And yet my mom was junior high math teacher for 25 years. And so I was pretty good at math because you didn't really have an option not to be in my family. And uh, I, I ended up getting an electrical engineering degree from Texas A&M because I was good at math. But my passion has always been people. And so I took a job with National Instruments right out of college and then ended up in uh, in, in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Detroit, but when I moved there, it was four degrees. <laughs> and I was like, holy smokes, this is cold. Um, I had a, a, a great time up there getting to know the automotive industry. And uh, people say, are you from Houston? I was like, well, I married Houston 23 years ago. And so I married Julie 23 years ago. I've been here ever since down here in Houston, Texas, and had the opportunity to start an integration firm with the help of a Detroit firm that ended up then selling to a Rochester, New York firm. And so for 14 years, I did this for for others. I got to get a business degree, fell in love with business uh, just because it's, it's the people side, right? And so um, just a really neat opportunity then came across my desk where a mentor of mine, and we could talk about that some, I'm a huge fan of mentoring, but a mentor of mine said, I will, I will fund half of what you need to get started if you can find the other half. Mm. And so in, in 2012, we were oversubscribed with friends and family in less than 48 hours. And I had the less than envious goal of having to go around and tell people I didn't have a spot for them. And so, um, that was nine years ago. We've been growing like crazy. We have 112 on staff now, and it has been the ride of a lifetime. Wow. So forgive me for not knowing this, but what does that mean you were oversubscribed? So we decided that we set a number for what we needed. My mentor said he would do half. Then I had called everybody I could even think of saying, hey, $50,000 here, $100,000 here, $25,000 here. Who wants in? And more people than I had spots for responded. And so it's like, oh man. Uh, and so, yeah, we had to turn a fair amount of people away uh, on the friends and family and just kept kept a few. So. so what was the idea? What was the kind of the business assumption that got you, your mentor and all these people enough so to, to buy in? Yeah. So that's the interesting thing. People talk all the time about like, so what makes Valentium tick? I mean, you announced it at the beginning of the deal that we're in oil and gas and medical device. And that seems probably fairly confusing. And we could talk about that as well. What makes Valentium tick is not what we do. When people ask about what is Valentium, I talk about our culture. And so that starts with why Valentium, then how Valentium, then who Valentium, then where are we headed at Valentium, and finally, what Valentium. Uh, and, 
And the reason we end with what Valentium is technology changes and marketplaces change all the time. And so if you don't have a core that's based on something way more timeless than the current technology, uh, then it's going to pivot and it could pivot without you if you're not careful. So we started Valentium around a passion to change lives for a better world. It's the core of what Tim, my co-founder and I are all about. We exist to change lives for a better world. I tell my staff that starts with them and their families. Mm. And then it moves on to our suppliers and our clients. And then it moves out to the patients or the users of the oil and gas technology that we ultimately serve. Uh, but when we started Valentium, that was the big core is we wanted a chance to directly impact the lives of staff, their families, and then the ecosystem that we play in. Wow. I love that. I wrote, I wrote that down. See if I got it right. There's why, then how, then who, then where, then what. Is that right? You got it. Yeah. And the what is what a lot of companies start with. And we've always been opposite of that. And sometimes people go, well, wait a minute. So what do you do? I was like, hang on, I'm not done yet. There's more, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. um, well, but let's, go really from, let's go from why, key. let's go from why, let's go to how. Yeah. So, so, so real quick, just a quick why story um, that really epitomizes it in two different ways. One is like this Saturday, we have a bed build in our parking lot. So we'll have 50 some odd staff and their families show up at our, in our parking lot. We partner with a group that shows up with a rider truck full of raw materials and over the next four to five hours, we will build 60 bunk beds. And it turns out that there are thousands of kids, probably in the Atlanta area, just like there are in the Houston area, sleeping on the floor or on couches or in their mama's bed. Hmm. And, uh, and usually it's a single parent that says, hey, my kid needs a place to sleep. And so then you spend the afternoon with these bunk beds you've just built. You put them into your SUVs, your, your pickups and your minivans, and, and you drive them out to these families. And we go install them in their homes with all the linens. And, and you get kids jumping on that bed for the first time. It's Dang. like nothing I've ever seen. And the fun thing about that is, Drew, you have your kids. I had the chance to meet your kid just earlier, but you have your yeah. kids come with you. Um, we have a banner from the last time we did this right before COVID where you took a Sharpie and signed your name on the banner. And my favorite picture from that day was one of our staff with a seven-year-old daughter and she is carefully penning out her name while he watches her. And I got a picture of both their faces and just the pride on daddy and the intent on little girl. And yet the company that got to make all that possible and to teach the story that when you care about someone else first, mm. you see a lot of power. So that's, that's the passion uh, we had a we had a supplier, a small supplier, a single person in her business, and she called me out of the blue one day, and she said, "You know, I I didn't know who else to call." I'm like, "Well, what's going on?" She was like, "My husband, he passed away unexpectedly in his high school classroom, heart attack," and I was like, "Oh, that's horrible." She was like, "And I don't I didn't know who else to call. I don't know what to do." And I said, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to give you an 80-hour contract and we'll prepay it. And you use the hours as you need them. And that's the fun thing about growing to the size that we're at is that an 80-hour contract is not the end of the world for us and we can mm. have that wherewithal. I said, well, we're going to go one step further. And we sent out a Slack to the company. I said, for every dollar you donate to one of our own who is really struggling right now, your, your executive team will match you dollar for dollar. And uh, she trusted us enough to give us her mortgage account and then we got to zo video Zoom with her and say, you know, we're, we've just paid the next four months of your mortgage. Holy we raised God. over $7,000 in three days um, with the, the, the staff of Valentium doing half and the executive team matching that dollar for dollar. And she just wept for 40, 40 seconds or so in just joy and grief and just the whole. And she was like, I, 
I, I can't believe it. Like you guys have loved me like no one has. And so that's, that's what Valentium is all about. It ultimately goes out to the patients that have devices where we, we turn science fiction into science reality. And, and it's fun to have people to have those devices in their life is completely different after, after one of our devices is in them, uh, implanted into them. So that's, that's the passion to change lives for a better world. I say, you know what, that's better than air. Um, but air is important because without it, you and I are both dead in six minutes. Right. You know, but, yeah. But lots of people say a company is all about profit. And I'm like, no, we exist on profit, but not for profit. Right. Mm. And so we exist to change lives for a better world. Without profit, we have no company. <laughs> and so if we want to keep changing lives for a better world, then we better continue to have profits. Um, so people say, well, man, it seems like you don't care about the money. I was like, no, 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 we, we care about the money. And I was coaching a, a soccer team once with one of my sons. And at the end of the game, the mother of an opponent came up and said, what's your name? I was like, uh, who's asking? <laughs> he goes, I want my boys to play for you because you care more about the boy and you care about winning. And I looked her in the eye. I was like, man, we care about winning because <laughs> yeah. in soccer with young boys, winning is the currency of attention. They'll, they'll believe you and listen to you to the extent that you're winning. And it's the same way with companies. If you're profitable, then suddenly you have opportunities. And as you have opportunities, you can accomplish your passion, which for whatever your passion is, that's your passion. For us, it's to change lives for a better world. We fought against it. For a long, long time, just because it seems trite. Yeah. You know, we bring good things to life or something, you know, it's like, but it's just, it's our heart. And if you really embrace your own personal passion and make it your company's passion, then you don't have to fake anything. It's just mm. who you are is who your company is and they just match. But you talked about, about the how that's the next step of Valentium. It's for three values. One of the things I like to say around here all the time is simple isn't easy, but simple is worth it. Simple isn't easy, but simple is worth it. If, if I uh, handed my 10-year-old back when he was a five-year-old my iPhone, it's got four buttons on it, and he found it as a five-year-old, found Temple Run, and was dominating Temple Run with zero training. I'm like, <laughs> man, how do you do that? First of all, I need a lock screen on my you – know, I, right. I figured that out. But uh, the reason he could do that is the Apple engineers worked tirelessly to make sure that it was simple to make sure it was simple. And it was, it was intuitive because the design engineers worked their tails off. And so I sat with two other leaders early on at our company and I said, give me the name of all the rock stars in your life, whoever that may be. It could be historical figures. It could be fictional characters, colleagues, neighbors, friends, whatever. And so we had all these names and then I changed colors and I said, now tell me why, why is that name up here? We'd put down all these traits. I erased all the names and then we played kill, keep and combine until we got it down to 12. You did EOS, didn't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. You better believe go. it. Yes. And uh, uh, I love Traction. In fact, yes. we have a book deal on culture with Ben Bella Books, uh, which is the same publisher of Traction. So we're yes. really excited about that. So Heck stay yeah. tuned for Crafting Your Culture, 28 Days to Save the World, which um, we could tell that story as well about how we stepped into the fray during COVID and built a ventilator factory. It was really, really fun. Wow. Um, well, I'm going to read but, that uh, book. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll come out soon. We're working on it right now. But uh, 12 values, that's not simple. Yeah, uh, you, you're probably way smarter than me, but I don't think I can even remember 12 values, let alone know which one applies. So we just kept working. I said, guys, it's not good enough. We finally got it down to three. Honorable, we do right for right's sake. Results plus plus, we do the job and then some. And humble charisma. Mm. Humble charisma. We strive to be the kind of people you want to be around. All right, so if you make a decision at this company according to those four things, changing lives for a better world, honorable, results plus plus, and humble charisma, I have got your back. And my favorite two words of Lentium are you decide, you decide. 
and uh, people see it coming from a mile away. They come into my office, they start asking questions. And uh, I say, well, which one of the values do you think applies here? Or how does the passion apply here? And they start to answer their question. And I, was, and I start to smile and they go, oh, man. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you decide. Because the fact is, Drew, I can't grow this company uh, if every decision goes through my desk. If every decision goes through my and Tim's desks, then we have to work crazy, crazy hours. But I don't want to work crazy hours. I've got a 15, 14, 13, and almost 11-year-old, and I want to be with them during the critical decade. Right. Yeah, so I've got four kids, 15, 14, 13, and almost 11. And if every decision has to go through my desk or Tim's desk, we can't grow without us working a ton of hours. And I don't want to work a ton of hours. I want everybody to work. We say all the time around here, we want 40 to 45 hours a week, and they should be the best hours that you you give. But there's going to be a couple of weeks every year where you've got to put in who knows how much. It may be 80 or 100 hours because there's deadlines. It is what it is. But you decide allows us as a company to grow everyone in the company to continue to develop and grow your talent because you know that the decision is going to be pushed in our company down lower and lower, closer and closer to that client. Yeah. And so uh, whether it be the, the why of changing lives for a better world or the how of honorable results plus plus and humble charisma, those four tenets govern everything we do. How early did you start to implement that? That culture, understanding those values, was that right away from the beginning? Was that a few years in? That was from the very beginning. We were talking, that that dry erase board with all those names was was on a dry erase board in early 2013, early wow. on in our, in our beginnings. It was actually the values were there before the passion because we kept fighting with the passion because it seems so simplistic and trite, but it really reflects who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I both love that I still don't know what you do. <laughs> and I'm still, and I'm both curious, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so well, one, I really do love that I don't know what you do yet because I think you're hitting at what really makes a company truly successful. And it's that it's bigger than the necessary, the product or the service or the, the, the expression of the company. And it's really down to who you are as a culture and what you're built on and your values and those kinds of things. So mm -hmm. uh, we can, we, we can still stay in that conversational zone, but just so I know what, what do you guys do? What do we do? So yeah, first of all, being Houstonians, uh, oil and gas is is all over this town. And so we do some of that. But the the thrust of the company as we formed it was around med device. So as technology has continued to evolve, uh, you're seeing more and more devices with more and more smarts built into those devices, increasingly either worn in a patch form or implanted into the human body. And so as these devices have gotten more and more complex, you've got startups and large medical devices alike that need a whole assortment of different services from usability and human factors and making sure that the device is intuitive to the surgeon or the nurse or the caregiver or the patient to cybersecurity in a world uh, that is nefarious and making sure that the device is safe from vulnerabilities. Uh, to manufacturing and manufacturing tests to make sure that every device comes off the line in the exact same way as the template device or the, the master device that was approved by FDA. Electronics design, because I've got now microcontrollers with, with memory and batteries and, and all the electronics inside these devices, and hence the firmware 
is the software on those microelectronics. I want that device to communicate to my phone and so mobile software and then cloud software so that the doctor and the caregivers and the ecosystem around this patient can see all of that data. The mechanical that puts all of this together into a form factor that's insertable into the human body and the leads that can tunnel out to the nerve that you want to excite. And finally, the systems engineering that ties all of those eight different sections together in one tidy package that you can send in a design history file off the FDA. We believe that that was pretty overwhelming to people. And the last thing they wanted to do is have nine fingers to have to point at the different vendors where everybody's pointing at each other. And so our premise from day one was if we created a one-stop shop for design and development at the elite level of class three, which is life-sustaining, implantable, active, which means they're making stimulation or decisions to the human body for therapy, medical devices, that that one-stop shop could be pretty interesting. And so we had a CEO early on, he was a friend of ours, where he had been an executive at one of our other clients. And he came in to, to our conference room and he said, so what do you guys do? Just like you did. Yeah. And I went through the deal. I said, human factors, cybersecurity, test systems, electrical, firmware, mobile, cloud, mechanical, and systems to tie it all together. And he was like, great. And how many people do you have? And I was like, six. <laughs> and he goes, wait, how do you do that? But now we've got it. Now we've got world elite subject matter experts in each of these different areas and then teams of people working underneath them. And that's the message is that if you are new as a medical device founder, you've got licensed IP out of a university and you want to take it from that licensed IP to full commercialization, we are a one-stop shop to do all of that. Or if you're a huge director at a major medical device company and you've got this innovative idea, but your resource limited on your team and you want us to augment your team, we could step in and do that as well. And so we can work in all nine areas from start to finish. Or we can work just in one of those areas if you just need some firmware support, or you want a mobile app built or something like that. So let's go back to when you were at six people and uh -huh. you're, you're, you're trying to get a customer to grasp and grab onto the opportunity of you being a full, you know, a one-stop shop, but you only have six people. How did you, how did you do that? Did you start with just one or two areas that you initially worked on and bolted on stuff as the company mm -hmm. grew, or did you find a way for six people to be able to service nine different uh, components? Yeah, so Tim and I both came out of test systems. I worked for National Instruments, which is a leading test equipment provider, and Tim was in test engineering for a medical device firm. And so we both started just testing devices. So that can be design verification testing, where you've just designed a new device, you want to see if it really works. It could be characterization testing, where I run all the different parameters through their entire sweep of characteristics to see if I can hurt the device by any combination, or it could be manufacturing test at the end where I make sure that every device that comes off the line matches what was approved. But then from there, we moved into firmware. And from there, we moved into the electronics. And suddenly we had electronics and firmware and everybody wanted it to talk to an app. So we dove into app development. It was pretty painful. Um, and that's a challenging deal because there are app developers far and wide, but app developers that comply with 62304, which is the international standard for medical software, um, there's just a rigor to medical software that is, uh, it can be less iterative than you see in app development. In app development, you get something out there, a minimally viable product, and then you continue to enhance the app and you push out new versions. and Hard to do that when it's talking to a pacemaker or a neurostimulator that's stimulating the brain, right? So, yeah, someone's um, life is on the line. You can't have bugs on that. 
Yeah, and then all the all the HIPAA regulations to make sure that if you're dealing with patient data that is private and it stays private and it can't get out, and um, which led us into cloud and cybersecurity. And then recently, human factors, which is the the beginning of how do I interact with this product, and then the end of making sure that it really is as intuitive as you say it is, and the mechanical that ties all that together, and you put it into a can, or you you have the leads that go out to the actual nerve to attach to that nerve. Um, those are the last two pieces, and we've got it all together now uh, under this realm of systems engineering, which gets back to the simple isn't easy, but simple is worth it. We want the most elegant solution possible. Because when replacing that primary cell battery, battery involves a scalpel, you really want it to last a long time, right? So, yeah. How long did it take before you got to the place where you felt like we've we've got this, we've got it simple, and we've, you know, I'm sure you're always improving and innovating, but that you felt like, man, we really have found simple. Yeah. So first of all, each one of our devices is in partnership with one of our clients, and so if you're talking about the business as a whole, man, we are always iterating because what I mean, you've probably heard this a hundred times that when you're two or three people and you do everything, then you go to eight to 12 people and now you start managing people. Then you go to 25 people and you manage someone who's managing. And then you go from there to a hundred and there's a big chasm there. It's like all the systems that used to work at 25 just don't work at a hundred. And so um, every time I think we've got simple, we grow right out of simple again, but that's where humble charisma comes in. I tell people all the time, welcome to Valentium. This hopefully is the fastest place you've ever worked and everything's broken all the time on the internal systems because what worked yesterday won't work tomorrow. Every quarter is like a year. So be humble, be charismatic about it. Tell us what you think is broken and rest assured we're going to fix it. Is that how you'd best characterize what it's like leading a company at this size at that hundred something person size? Uh, so our, our, my mentor, Larry Bickle, who helped me start the company, he said, just so you know, a bigger company is easier to run than a smaller company. I was like, wait, huh? It kind of surprised me. And he said, yeah, because once you get large enough, you can now hire world elite experts in each one of the different areas. So whether that be the different areas of the technical world or world elite salespeople, or we'll, I mean, we have a CFO now that has been in multiple private equity deals before he came to work here. And, and so they're, they're just different positions you can hire where you don't have to be the jack of all trades anymore. So what I would say, as far as getting to 100, that's been most uh, enjoyable for me is I continue to carve off pieces of my job description. And which, which ones are you going to carve off? The ones you either are not so good at or you don't enjoy as much, right? And so yeah. every time we grow, I get more and more slotted into the thing I really like to do. Yeah, which I'm sure you're familiar with in, in EOS language, attraction language. Delegate and elevate. Delegate right? to elevate, but towards yeah. your unique ability, right? Mm -hmm. The thing Absolutely. that's at the intersection of what you're best at and you most enjoy. What's your current understanding of or articulation of your unique ability that you keep moving more and more towards? I like people. <laughs> I like people a lot. And so connecting with people, sharing vision with people. So the idea of something that I or our organization can see that they may not be able to see themselves. That comes in the questions that we ask our clients, that comes in the questions that we ask our candidates that come and are trying to work for us, um, to believe in something, to see something, and to then say, we can get there together is something that, that I really like to do. And so you find, as you continue to push the limits of the company into new areas of service, as well as into new areas of giving. I mean, when we had our first bed build in the parking lot, it felt kind of awkward and weird. 
now it's like, well, when are we doing the next bed build? Right. And so um, anytime you start something like that, it's a little bit out there. And I like that. I like to be a little bit out there, pushing people, encouraging people, connecting with people, um, and just creatively trying to find ways to better solidify our culture because our culture was really everything at Valentium. And, and to, to have a dream, now I'm getting into the where of Valentium. If you said, where's Valentium headed? We have a dream of a thousand families. Hmm. So when you say, where are you headed? I'm headed to a thousand families. You're like, yeah, but what does that mean? I was like, well, that means a thousand staff. And then maybe that's your spouse and your seven kids, or maybe that's you and your pet parakeet. I don't know. I mean, but the, whatever your family situation is, that's fine with me. But the fact is uh, we're headed to a thousand and we've been headed to a thousand families since before I ever started the company. Wow. It was my goal before we ever started. It's why our board books and our chairman of our board, when we were first set up, he was also on the board of a major oil and gas firm and he ran both boards the same way. He ran our board as if we were a Fortune 500 company. And so I've been doing board books from the very beginning. In fact, for the first board meeting, I sent him, I sent him and the rest of the board members an email with like 17 attachments. He was like, what is this? I was like, it's the stuff for the board meeting. He was like, where's the board book? I said, what's a board book? <laughs> you know, and, and then he taught me and we've been doing it ever since. And so- I still yeah, don't know is, what a board book is. What is a board book? It's, a, it, it's essentially a PDF that walks through, I mean, for, for me and what he taught me was the first deal is a one page synopsis of the last quarter from me. And then it gets into the resolutions, anything that you need the board to formally weigh in on. Then it gets into the financials from the last quarter. So what, what's profit and loss, what's employee count, what's growth figures. Um, and then you get into key initiatives. And then there's a goals and budgeting uh, rhythm of the year. And so as you get towards the end of the year, you're working on budgets and goals for the next year. As you get into the first and second quarter, you're saying, how are we tracking towards the budget? Are we over budget, under budget? How are we tracking towards the goals? Is this goal not a goal anymore because something changed? Are we way above the goal, way under the goal? Um, and then, then strategic discussions that may come up on a one-by-one -one or meeting-by-meeting -meeting basis. Hmm. And all of that in a very coherent PDF deck, if you will, uh, that you then walk them through. And, and I learned, like, as the chairman of the board, he's in charge of the meeting, and he would say, I call this meeting to order, Dan. <laughs> and then I would run the whole meeting, then he would call for it to end. You know, and so... Um, but it was great. I, I was trained from early on, you know, when we were a very small company, how to have a company that can handle hopefully a thousand people. Well, that brings me to what you said earlier, which is your passion for mentorship. And I would love just to hear about that, who this, who this person is, how you met mm -hmm. him and where, what does mentorship look like in your life? Yeah. Let me tell you two mentoring stories. So the first is Larry Bickle. Uh, Larry is a, a businessman in Houston. He also, he has a home in Denver um, and love Larry. I, I know him and his wife Vivian well, and uh, met him through a friend. We went to coffee in 2005 at a Starbucks. I had a whole PowerPoint where I presented, speaking about as quickly as I'm sure I'm speaking too quickly again now. And after like 45 minutes, he just put his head in his hand and he goes, "You make me tired." <laughs> and he was like you need to you need to think about like taking a breath thinking resting and, and it was a really interesting deal because one thing he taught me is like what got me to the point where i could start a company is not what gets you to the next level yeah we all got to this point as founders by winning 
by being the one that stayed up the latest, that worked the hardest, that got the Hustle. most results, that, yep. that hustled more than anybody else and just closed more deals, closed more houses, whatever the thing is that you do. But as a leader, it's your job to enable that in others. It's your job to think about what's over the next fall summit. It's your job to think about what's around the next corner and how we're going to organizationally be ready for that. It's just a whole different game. And some people see that and they're like, yeah, no, thanks. I'm going to go back to doing. And that's perfectly fine. If a company of eight people is not a bad company. It's a great company. In fact, it's a great company for a lot of my friends. It's just not the company I wanted. I wanted mm -hmm. a company with a thousand families, not necessarily as a big badge for myself, but because I wanted to have influence into a thousand families because that's a thousand swim teams, a thousand elementary schools, a thousand churches, a thousand running clubs. It's, it's a thousand micro societies. And hopefully we put a dent for good around changing lives for a better world, honorable results, plus, plus humble charisma in society through these thousand people. It's beautiful. So what did that relationship look like? Has it evolved? Yeah. So, um, and that was the first of the two mentor stories. We, we then met often for coffee. Um, and we got to a point where I was talking about my job and I was working for a New York based firm and they were great. They, they treated me really well. I opened Denver, Minneapolis and Dallas, as well as Houston for them, but I didn't have the picture of the full business. And I wanted the legal, I wanted the accounting, I wanted the benefits and the HR. I wanted the business side. It's mm. kind of what I was excited about. Um, and that's when he said, well, Hey, I will give you, I'll be your lead investor if you can find the other half. And so, um, we went through an investment round together. And then uh, many years later in Valentium's history, we bought them out. And so Tim and I now own 97% of the company. And, uh, and, and he has been able to financially win through that mentoring relationship. But then he also got to a point, he was like, I've taught you what I can teach you. And I was like, no, you can't do this to me. He was like, you need to find another one. And um, at a epilepsy benefit, the chairman of what is now Leva Nova is Dan Moore. And uh, I walked up to Dan Moore because he was now running a major medical firm, which is kind of, you know, it's what I dreamed of, not, not in their space as a product company, but in my space as a service company. And I walked up to him, I handed him my card. I said, I'd like to buy you coffee sometime. And he handed me his card. And I, I called him and I emailed him and I talked to my wife about like, how often do you think I could spam this guy before it's a little awkward? And and I called him and I kept emailing him. I heard nothing. And like six months later, he calls me. He was like, I've got a little bit of time this afternoon if you want to hang out. And I was like, babe, I'm not coming home. I'm going to see Dan Moore. And I, <laughs> I drove across town as quickly as possible. And we ended up hanging out for probably close to three hours. And at the end of that, he was like, you know, by the way, I always ignore people's first overtures if they want to spend time. Because if you really want to spend time together, you're going to continue to reach out. And I was like, wow. oh, well, I'm glad I didn't give up. And that. I have since brought one of my sons up to where he lives in Indianapolis and, and like, cause he was on a trip. We went to a Cubs game and then drove down to see him again. And like, and it was actually Dan Moore that said, I used to say, we dream of a day that we'd have a thousand staff. And he goes, but you're so family focused. I was like, absolutely. Am. He's like, why wouldn't you just say a thousand families? And I was like, yes, that's it. That's yeah. it. A thousand families. It brought it all together. And that's what we found is as you get to different points, the elements of your culture, they eventually just click and then, you know, you've got it. We first nailed it with the values. We eventually got it with the passion, the wear of Valentium of a thousand families. It, it hit over beer and pizza in Indiana, you know, just outside of Indianapolis with Dan Moore. And so um, 
the other one was our name. I desperately wanted something where the dot com was available. And yet I wanted something that was not connected to my name because I wanted to live beyond me. And so we came up with this idea of like, we want uber talented people, but we also want high speed. And how do we make that all work together? And that's velocity, momentum, and ingenium is the Latin word for talent. And so valentium is velocity, momentum, and talent or ingenium. And, and that's, that kind of rounds out the whole thing. If you're an EOS person in traction, I highly recommend you read traction. Uh, get get a grip and listen to that in the car because it's a fable all about traction and it's entertaining and and they'll talk about RPRS or right person right seat so for Valentium right person is our passion and our values you're a right person if you believe to, that you exist to change lives for a better world and you're going to live with honor results plus plus and humble charisma and we are very patient if you're an RP if you're not an RP we found it's very difficult to turn you into one sure. there's probably another company that's a better place for you that's fine it, 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 David Weekly Homes is a huge home builder here in town. And I met one of his first employees on a plane once. And he said, yeah, if it's not a fit, you just invite someone to pursue excellence elsewhere. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's really well said. That's um, cool. But then right seat is in our name. So if you're a right person, you align with our passion and our values. If you're in the right seat, that means you can do the job. You, you can get it, want it, and are capable of doing it. And you can do it fast. Yeah. Right. And so we're very patient with right seed. If you can't quite get this job and do it quickly, we can train you. We can assign you a different set of tasks. We will find something that works because you're the right person. You're jazzed by all that we're about. Uh, I love that, man. We, we align on so much, you know, we would articulate it slightly differently, but my company is built on the same kind of foundation. We just love it. We love seeing humans flourish. And so one of the things we talk about is most people feel like they have to choose between profits or people. And we think that's bad math. I think you can have both. And when they work well together, like you said, the profits let you stay in the game. They give you they give you the resources to do things with. But the people are critical to get the profits, right? And so they serve each other if you serve them. And one of the things that we work on is accelerating human performance. So mm -hmm. we want to accelerate the growth process of a person becoming what they could be in a company. The leader could be, the executive team, the manager that kind of thing. And you mentioned before we even got on here that I want to make sure we talk about that you were diving into flow research, which I love. Yeah. I love Stephen Kotler. I love the idea of understanding the state that a person can be in where mm -hmm. they experience timelessness, where they experience uh, a selflessness. That was a big part that I learned from him in those flow states, that there's a few things that are happening. You lose, you know, self-orientation goes away time orientation goes away inhibition and insecurity goes away and you bring your true best self for a meaningful moment right mm -hmm. and so i'm just curious why it why that sits with you and what you're learning and how you're thinking about how that might even apply to either your life or the people that are part of your company how is that translating sure sure so flow is the cheat code if you will for valentium for velocity momentum and ingenium like it's if you take velocity, momentum and talent or ingenium and you infuse that with flow, you suddenly have the ability to get things done at a level that maybe you couldn't do before. But the fact of the matter is, is when you lose yourself in time where you wake up, you wake up, I say, but you know, you kind of get out of flow and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's 630. I got to get home or whatever. And yep. that that is so fun. Yes. And when time stands still and you're really, really in it. It's just so fun. And, and so we find that uh, that environment has to be cultivated. 
And then once you find that old environment and you figure out how to cultivate it, then it has to be trained. And then finally it has to be disciplined, right? So it's like, so cultivate it is first. So um, I cannot get into flow in clutter. So mm. if my desk is full of junk, it's a no bueno, right? So um, I have found that uh, a candle and jazz helps, right? And so if I'm in the office, it'll be a smaller candle or, or like, and then noise reduction headphone, headset, right? And at home, it doesn't have to be that way. And so, but like that kind of sets a stage for me. Now, other people are different. My, my colleague, Tim, my co-founder, he, he cannot do music. He was like, no, if there's any kind of background noise, it, it, he loses it. And so different people are different ways. But so to cultivate is one thing. Then to train, to say, okay, how am I going to train my organization to respect flow? Because I, we have flow boards outside of every cube. It's got, it's got your name. So it's a Drew McClure. And then instead of your title, you can put whatever you want, like underneath. And so for me, I've got my, my five family members underneath. Under Tim's name, he's got hello in like a gajillion different languages because he loves to do world travel. Different people put different things. And then there's a picture that can be you and your family or just something else. In fact, our CTO, Randy Armstrong, he has a rare stamp because he's a treasure hunter through stamp collecting. And so he has a rare stamp as his picture. Um, but then there's this dial that's got red for do not disturb, blue for I'm out, green for come on in. And I think there's one more color that we never use. But we talk about it all the time around here. Respect the red. If you wow. see red, you leave that person alone. They're, they're dominating for all of us. Yeah. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Like when you're on Slack and we use Slack all the time, if somebody's on do not disturb and they're on red, leave them alone. And so that training that, but then the discipline is more on the personal side. So it's like uh, in all of Cutler's research, he talks about how flow is exhausting, right? You, you come out with this high, but it's also taken something, right? It, and for so sure. have the discipline to say, no, I live for this. I live for these states. And as a result, I'm going to discipline myself to go turn it to red, get my environment right, and dive in, uh, it's a lot easier to check Slack. It's a lot easier to check email. It's a lot easier to surf the web. It's a lot easier to do. I mean, you can tell when I've got some really big deadline and, and that kind of thing, because suddenly I'm interested in like cleaning the house, because I'll do yeah. anything to avoid having to get into a difficult flow state around a difficult concept. But then once you get in, man, you, you can get in and really be stuck in, which is beautiful unless you're interrupted. And so um, we've just tried to work hard. We have a book club at the company and so we, we've read uh, Deep Work, which is a book yeah. about flow. Um, and then I've done Zero to Dangerous. A shout out to Zero to Dangerous. If you're ever looking for a training around flow by the Kotler's group, it's the Flow Research Collective. Uh, fascinating, fascinating work. And so, um, yeah, it's just essentially I would call it a cheat code on how to get more done and be way more jazzed about what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. One question I have for you, and then I know we're coming up on time, so I need to let you go soon. But what I hear often is, you know, there's what we call the war between the urgent and the important. <laughs> and yeah. often the urgent, if you're not thinking, if you're not thinking outside of the moment, you just get sucked up into a bunch of reactionary stuff all day, and you're convinced that that's the way it has to be, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's some other people that have kind of flipped the game on their head and go, actually, 
you know, the, the phrase we use a lot is 99% of emergencies aren't. Mm-hmm. They're just not. They present themselves to you as an emergency, but they end up becoming distractions to the truly important thing you needed to be doing that day and get into a flow state and whatever. But how do you negotiate that? Is it, how do you help your culture be proactive in setting mm-hmm. aside the time they need to do the most important stuff and get into that flow state versus just reacting to the email that came in and the Slack messages and all that kind of stuff that is a level of importance. You can't just totally disregard it, but it's like you have to kind of reprioritize or time blocking yeah. or something, you know, like how do you guys? Well, I that? think at the core, personally for me, you have to come to a point of enough self-security that you don't need that urgent uh, buzz, if you will, of like, look what I just did, right? I mean, because the fact is, if you get hooked on that buzz of feeling important in the urgent, you're actually leaving the important aside, and you just mortgaged some some portion of your future. Yeah, and it may be it may be recoverable. It probably is recoverable, but it's not recoverable right now because it's already gone. And so, um, to to rethink, like your whole mindset around significance. Um, and there's lots of great books about it. Think and Grow Rich, uh, The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Both of those have been very instrumental for me. Just the, what is your money mindset? Yeah. Which I would say more, more generally, what is your productivity mindset? And so uh, do you have enough security to say, no, only the important survives? Yeah. Um, and then do you have a company that will respect that? It may be that your boss is like, heck, no, it doesn't. I want the urgent and I want it now. And, and I really fight that in myself because I'm guilty like any boss, like to no, I want it and I want it now. Did I just call somebody out of the blue and I expect them to answer because I want to talk to them right now? Or did I take the time to schedule something ahead of time, which took some forethought, et cetera? Um, yeah, it's it's a real challenge for sure. Um, but I would say to try diving deep into yourself to think about why do I keep going back to the urgent? Yes. Man, it reminds me of, let me see if I can find it real quick on the cuff while we're, while we're doing this. But I will listen to this conversation between uh, Pete Carroll and Michael Gervais. Do you know about them? I know Pete, but I don't know Michael. Uh-uh. So Michael Gervais, in the industry I'm in, I look up to him a lot. He is, uh, he's a sports psychologist as well as uh, just a, a performance coach, right? And so he's been working closely with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks for close to a decade now. And Pete has seen him as being invaluable to their organization and what they're trying mm. to do with their culture. So they, they wrote a book together. They created a company called Compete to Create. I'm giving a lot of free advertising for them. Love it. And it's awesome. And so I listened to a audible book that they did. It's just a conversation between the two of them called Finding Your Best. And I found it. He had this, Michael Gervais had this quote where he said, most cultures are built on high productivity, not performance, where their identity is tied to what and how much they do. They end up increasingly hustling for their self-worth, believing if they do more, they will be more. They become trapped when their self-worth is a consequence rather than a cause of production or personal achievement. Hmm. And that's what I've found is, like you said, very intuitive of you, that there's some self-worth unknowingly derived by output. Look, I I responded to every email and I did a lot of things. I did a lot of things versus, but did I do the most important thing? And even if that thing has a delayed result that maybe I'm working on something now that we won't see the fruit of for another month or three months. Right. And he's like, you've got to distance yourself, but it comes back to the culture. Does it, which one does the culture promote? Does it, does it promote the results that matter 
regardless of how long it took you to get there, or does it promote the instant thing and the and the appearance of busyness? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we've been trained from the earliest of ages. I mean, third or fourth grade, if you can get through that 100 multiplication table in three minutes or less, you win. And if yes. you don't, you have to keep doing it. And it goes all the way into your early career before you started this entrepreneurial endeavor. And it's like, if you can get more sales than anybody else, if you get more calls in than anybody else, it's, we live in that kind of world. And yet it all gets turned on its head when you enter into leadership, because suddenly it's the quality of the idea that is way, way, way more important than the quantity of ideas. We tell people this all the time. That like the the difference between winning and, and losing is just so infinitesimal. I mean, We've been cheering on Novak Djokovic all year long because it's never been done since 1969. He got all the way to the final of the U.S. Open and came up a couple of sets short. And you're like, that's that's just how close you can be, right? And so yeah. um, shout out to what he did do, though. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of uh, a client of mine that I was coaching the other day who was recognizing, I think, she was the, the way that she was understanding it is I think I'm, I'm succumbing to the tyranny of the urgent. And every day I feel this guilt and this, I just got to do what keeps presenting itself to me, but I keep putting off the thing that I had forethought about is the most important thing. And I said, would it be fair to say that most quarters when you're reviewing your goals, you find yourself defending the fact that you dropped the ball on the most important thing that we had set out and you use all the small things that came up in the meantime? And she was like, yes. I was like, would you rather be in that same meeting defending all the small balls you dropped because you accomplished the big things. And she was like, that, I'd rather do that. And I was like, the only way you're going to do that is by you starting to actually prioritize in the meantime the important things that you've already thought about, that you see clearly, and then you find space knowing that I'll probably still drop some of the smaller things, but I'd rather defend that than the fact that we didn't hit our goals or that we didn't make the improvement that we said we were going to make as a company and I'm justifying it because of all the fires that, that popped up. Does that make sense? For sure. Quick shout out to, to any of you that are still dragging your heels on quarterly offsites. Um, this Thursday, the five of us on our senior leadership team will spend all day together away from the office on a quarterly cadence that we have done since like 2014. Wow. And so I can look back over those meeting minutes, and that is a three-month by three-month where we're looking at 10-year, three-year, one year and then quarterly goals. And you, when you know the next one's coming and that there are four other people on the senior leadership team going to be like, so where do you stand with what we talked about three months ago? Yes, It, it creates not just coach-based ac- a- a- accountability, it creates peer-based accountability that yeah. we have decided together that this really matters. And yeah. it's really fun to look. When you look at the 10-year goal we set in 2012, it became the three-year goal in 2019, and we're hitting it here in 2021. Come on. And it's just fun to see. And, and so now, like, when we challenged the team in 2019 to set a new 10-year goal because we made the 10-year the three-year, um, the 2029 goal, I said, what if we made it 1,000 families? And everybody's like, whoa. Because we, I think we had 45 on staff. I was like, that's just growing 20 times in 10 years. Let's take a look at it. You could make a spreadsheet, say whatever you want. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, here we go. If we grow at this percentage and we have a couple of acquisitions, we can do it. And I just let it marinate for a while. And by the end of the day, it was like, yeah, let's do that. And so 2029, a thousand families, here we go. And it's super fun. That's amazing, man. And I just want to 
to end this part of the conversation with giving you the shout out. It's it's inspiring to hear conversations like this. It's inspiring to hear companies built on values and priorities like this and to also know that it works. Last year, not only did you make the Inc. 5000 list in 2020, but you made it again in 2021 and a thousand spots higher. And man, just some, some social validation. I know it doesn't mean everything, but I wanted to give you, you guys some major props and shout out for the work you've done. You bet, Drew. Thanks for thanks for interviewing me and, and allowing us to be on the show. It's super fun to to just help people understand. I like to say slow, fast, slow. If you will take the time to slow down and plant roots culturally in your company, in, a, in our world, it's like, what does it mean to be a true Valentonian, right? It's like, what does it look like? Then you'll have fast moments. Yeah. Uh, we had one last, last March where in partnership with General Motors, the U.S. government, and, and Ventec Life Systems, a company we've been serving for years to build a ventilator factory that would suddenly build 10,000 ventilators a month. And we did that in just over a month and a half. And, uh, and, but it was extremely fast, but because we had the roots of culture that we had been working on for almost a decade, the whole team just stepped right up immediately. And then to slow down afterwards and say, what just happened here? What did we mm-hmm. learn? How can we make sure that the lessons from this turn Valentium after that ventilator factory into a world that is never the same as what we were before, because we are different now. So slow, fast, slow to, to take the time to see, see your roots deep such that when you have those moments and they come up and you know, when they've come up, it's like, now I've got to seize the leadership, seize the, seize the day and get after it. And then afterwards to, to regroup, review and learn. So huge, Beautiful. huge. That's beautiful. Oh, I wrote that down. I hope we. I hope uh, my team names the, the episode "Slow Fast Slow." That's that's awesome. Nice. Uh, I have the power to do that. I can. I can tell <laughs> you that. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's get into our five lightning round questions. So, you bet. These are five questions we've asked every founder that's been on the podcast. Starting with question number one: If you could ingrain just one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Uh, we exist to change lives for a better world. It starts with the passion. If you have a decision to make, make that decision for humanity. Hmm. Never check your humanness at the door. We have a, a tendency in corporate America to say, I walked through the door, I entered my cube, and I became an asset. No, that person next to you, that person around the corner, and that person in the boardroom, all the way up to the very top, has dreams and fears and excitement and family and friends and agendas and like, Let's keep our humanness at all times. I love that. And if you keep if you keep showing up, feeling like you're an asset, eventually you just co- start feeling like you're an ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does you know? happen. Yeah, uh, I love it. All right, number two. What is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst? <laughs> um, so my mentor, my first mentor, Larry Bickle, said there are five aspects of a business, and I think about this a lot. And so there, there are people technology, legal and regulatory, finance, and sales and marketing. And if you could see me, sales and marketing is the thumb because yeah. without the opposable thumb, you have a very expensive and time-consuming hobby. <laughs> and that's not a good idea. Um, but thinking through your business according to those five areas, people, technology, legal and regulatory, finance, and sales and marketing. Uh, making sure you dominate in each one of those in whatever niche you choose to play in. If you can't dominate all five, you need to keep looking for, for where you can. Mm-hmm. And once you get all five, 
uh, man, you've got something really special. And uh, I like to say that in that situation, it's like somebody just handed you the ball in the backfield and you watch the guard and the center just plow through those linebackers and it is pay dirt. You just hit the hole and don't fumble and you're 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 off to the races, right? And so, yeah. um, but it really takes all five. If you have a hole in either any one of those areas, uh, then you've got to shore that up. I love that. Um, as far as uh, the advice that I, I don't want to take, uh, there are those that continue to get back to just the numbers. Like you shouldn't take that deal because it can't be profitable enough, or you shouldn't take that deal because uh, it's not in your niche, or you shouldn't take that deal for whatever reason. Um, we have taken deals sometimes because they just feel like they're right. Mm. Um, we have taken a chance on staff sometimes because it just feels like they're right. And that's sometimes they turn into some of our best staff because there is just a cultural connection there that's different than the hard science. Um, and it takes the CEO or the leader of the group or whatever to, to have the courage to step into that unknown because yeah. you kind of are right. It's like, there's that nobody ever got fired for, for, for hiring blank, the leader in your industry. Right. But it's like, no, I'm going to be the subversive one. The one that's a little bit different. The one that's going to ask the penetrating question. I had an opportunity once early in my career where, where, Three finalists were all competing for this job, this one project. I said, can I go last, please? And I showed up without a presentation. I laid out their drawing, and we just started talking about their drawing together. And once we found a couple of errors in their drawing together, and they realized that none of the other competitors had suggested that, I knew we had won. And that turned into a huge project for our company because, you know what? It, it wasn't about PowerPoint. It wasn't about the standard that everybody else said are the rules of this engagement. It was about changing the rules and winning. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, question number three. What is, no, well, yeah, what is currently causing you the most stress or worry leading your organization? Uh, so I talked about those five aspects, right? Uh, we are weakest in finance hmm. because we've been bootstrapped from the day we started. Um, and so we're currently in a, in a growth equity round uh, where we're working with a partner to, to recapitalize the company and sell a minority share to where we continue to have cultural control. Um, but we finally made that call just because the growth that we continue to achieve was being cash limited because growth eats cash. I don't know if any of, if all of your entrepreneurs get that, but it's like you hire a bunch of people and they're on net two weeks, right? They want to be paid every other Friday, Yeah. but they, they show up, they get trained. Then they do great work. Then that great work eventually hits a milestone. Then that event, eventual milestone is finally invoiced. And then they, you get paid for that invoice in 30 or 60 or 90 days, depending on your relationship with that client. And then you have the cash. So the faster you grow, the faster you're paying people every two weeks, but you haven't seen any cash on that. Eventually it comes through and then the profits wash up behind you and you can do it again, but growth eats cash. Yeah. And so you could be extremely successful and cash starved and cash is the air of a company. And so, um, yeah, that's the thing that keeps me concerned these days is, is getting to a point financially where we've got the balance sheet behind us to really pursue our dreams. Totally makes sense. Great, great wisdom. Even just for me to listen to, uh, makes sense. Even thinking about like shoe dog, the book I read yeah, on, on night and how successful <laughs> they were for so many years, but oh, man, how much cash that was eating. 
Yeah. They couldn't yeah. get a bank. They couldn't get a bank on the West coast to stick with them. You know, my uh, mom's name is dot. And there's a line in shoe dog that says, so I asked dot if she would watch the kids. And I took my wife to Asia and I highlighted that in there and gave my mom the book for Christmas and didn't say that I highlighted it. And then she eventually found it. And I was like, yep, yeah, we asked dot to watch the kids. <laughs> so <laughs> love shoe dog. It's a great book. That's awesome. All right. Question number four. I feel like I already know the answer to, but I'll ask it anyways. And that is, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? A thousand families. There a thousand is. families. And and just a quick shout out, whatever the uh, your BHAG is, that should be the denominator of your key metric. Yep. So in ours, it's a thousand families. And so our key metric is revenue per developer. The denominator being developer, and that is our BHAG, a thousand families or a thousand developers. And so if it doesn't quite line up yet, then maybe something's got to shift a little bit because the thing you're most passionate about in your goals should be the denominator of your key metric because mm. it then shows you how to be the most successful. Love that. Man, dropping gold here every 30, every 30 seconds, man. This is awesome. <laughs> well, uh, I tell you, read Jim Collins, good to great, built to yeah. last, great by choice, how the mighty fall. Those books are unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Question number five, we'll take a little break and this is going to be our fun, creative question. So, okay. We're going to play a game called back to the future. <laughs> you get to hop into a DeLorean. You get nice. to go back to your past. But we're not there to change anything necessarily. The rule is you only get to pass along one message to that younger version of yourself. When would you go back, and what message would you pass along to that younger version of you? Hmm. hmm. I, I think that my hard-charging type A mentality has stepped into a lot of phrase way more aggressively and angrily than I would have liked. And so I think I would have told probably my 26 year old self to learn to breathe. Hmm. I was just working with my daughter recently. Like if you go through an exercise where you take 30 seconds for one breath, it takes a lot of discipline. You, unless you're like Caesar Pena on our team is a, like a Ironman triathlete, triathlete. He could probably do three minutes or something, but 30 seconds for me, where you breathe in very, very slowly and then breathe out very, very slowly. Do that five times and see if you still want to say what you're about to say. Mm. And I think if I could tell that 26 year old to do that, um, you can look back in life as a 49 year old. And there are probably uh, between five and 10 times that I'm like, if I could have those words back, and I didn't say that in anger, usually to a loved one, because we tend to treat them the worst. Um, I'd take it. I'd take it yeah. in a heartbeat. Well said. Well, Dan, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation. Thank you for taking the time to share your heart, to share your passion, to share your wisdom with us. It has been much appreciated. I know it's been super valuable to me and I'm sure to our audience as well. So I thank you so much for coming on here today. You bet, Drew. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.